This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. You're leaving a foundation of safety. So it's not like I was living a bad life. Anyone who was looking at my life would have been like, that's a pretty great life, but it felt horrible. Like it felt horrible. There was no pleasure. There was no connection. When I look back now, I was just like, I wasn't even happy. I was pretending to be happy. And I'm still, I cannot even tell you like, what was the thing that made me take that risk? You know, I'll often ask my clients, do you want to bet on probability or possibility? So the probability piece is the comfort, the calm. I know what I'm going to get. The possibility piece is full of risk and probably maybe a little bit of danger and the unknown. And for some reason, that felt like my only choice. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Holly Richmond, a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist, and licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in serving women, men, couples, and gender diverse individuals in relationships and sexuality. Today, we're talking all about relationships, specifically as they pertain to our new world of isolation and what that really means for those of us dating, single, in long-term partnerships, or navigating friendships. Dr. Holly shares with Bedside her own story of unblocking love and pleasure and gives advice on how we can better establish rich and deep connections, whether old or new. We get real about relationship dynamics in COVID, managing sexpectations, vulnerability, and what Dr. Holly has coined as mindful sex. She also shares with us tips on what she considers the most important qualities in relationship building, how we can set better foundations for connection, and what we should really be prioritizing. Without further ado, Dr. Holly Richmond. Dr. Holly, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you, first and foremost, for coming on the show. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. I've I've been really looking forward to this. So before we get into the depths of our conversation today, and we were just chatting about kind of where we're at and just the state of things right now and how excited we are to get talking, I'd love to hear kind of in your own words, a little bit about yourself and how you got started working in the field as a sex therapist. Wow. Okay. Thank you for asking. And I'm going to keep it brief to to the extent I can. But this this is the third career for, for me. So the second one was as a journalist for 15 years. 
And the route from writing to therapy, I feel like it was it was fairly direct. So um, I read a book many years ago now called True Notebooks by Mark Salzman. And he is a writer and he went into a boys uh, juvenile detention facility in Los Angeles and started teaching creative writing. And he wrote about that experience and how it changed his life. And of course, how it changed the boy's life. But it just it moved every part of me. And I decided I was going to do that. Um, I was writing for magazines before like fashion beauty health fitness celebrity profiles beautiful houses um and it just was starting to feel very very empty so i actually found a position teaching creative writing at a girls detention facility in camarillo california so just north of los angeles and loved that but knew i needed more and that's when i decided to go back to graduate school and got a master's in clinical psychology and a phd in somatic psychology and then a certification in sex therapy wow i mean i i, I can kind of see that journey from journalist to therapist it really clicks i mean it it is about storytelling and listening and that ear for empathy so i can really understand that wanting to go deeper yeah yeah and in that teaching role i just couldn't and i didn't have the skills mm. so an, an important piece of the story that i missed telling was when i was having these girls write so they were between 13 and 19 I was reading just horrific stories of sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual violence, and the the girls would write about them kind of like, well, this happened, and then I went to 7-Eleven, and then I, you know, went out with my friend, and it was kind of like a non-event, and that was so hard for me to sit with, and I remember telling them, like, this is not okay, but that was pretty much all I had, and I was like, okay, I need to do better than that. So that really started this journey into sex therapy um, because I chose to do my 3,000 hours of internship at the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. So that really kind of cemented working with survivors, but then overlaying that with sex therapy because the pleasure piece of this, which you and I are getting to, is is just critical. Mm, wow. I mean, I'm curious, did you have any sort of messaging when you were growing up around sex and sexuality, whether it was in your household or at school? The easiest answer is no. But I also want to be be clear that I wasn't raised in purity culture. My parents are the most super liberal, kind, open to whatever human beings. But, you know, I was raised in the 70s and 80s and was expected to be a good girl. And that's what I did. So when I was bad, so, you know, I was always like just like super interested in boys, super interested in sex. But that was my like that was when I got to be bad. So there was always holding two parts of myself, the good girl forward facing to the world and then the girl who liked to sneak around and do sexy things. Did you ever struggle with that duality or did you kind of figure out a way that that worked with you? That's a great question. Um, I think just as I got older, I learned I could, I didn't have to be good and that sex isn't bad. And I think, gosh, I feel like young women get that so much better now that their pleasure needs to be prioritized. I mean, we're still not getting sex education, but there's more information out there. And I, I, I didn't have that. So I just kind of, you know, went with whatever everyone else was doing, which sounds horrible to say out loud, but that's the truth of it. Yeah. And it just kind of worked itself out. You've mentioned before that sex saved your life. I'm I'm really curious about that. Tell me more. Oh my gosh, it I just I I believe it. 
I, in my late 20s and most of my 30s, I was pleasure deficient, like almost pleasure avoidant, pleasure averse. Um, In my life, like all those things I just told you, those were happening. I was high functioning. But when I tell you I was a shell of myself in so many ways, I just was not living because everything was super controlled, super locked down. I was just like linear, sharp, all of those things that just don't allow pleasure and connection. So I met someone and the reason why I stumbled there is because I don't want to say, oh, he saved my life or, you know, that that was the saving thing that changed everything. He was a huge part of it, but I did that myself and sex did that right? Like really settling in to what pleasure means and really settling into what connection means to make me feel like I could live again. Thank you for sharing that because I think that there is a turning point when you can recognize that your pleasure is completely up to you and that beforehand it was dictated by a lot of what culture was telling you to do or showing you how to be and exist in the world And then there's really a choice, right? I see it almost like, you know, you go left or right on the road and it's whether or not you can see pleasure for yourself. You can, you can kind of say, Hey, why have I been halfway living? I I couldn't agree more. And it was like, for me, it rocked the house. Like it came with a lot of big life-changing decisions, Mm. like leaving my job as a journalist, going back to school a huge change in relationships. Like this was not just, oh, pleasure's coming in and I'm just going to carry on. Like it, everything changed. I would actually love to talk about that because tell me more about how that rocked the house because I think so many people have been in that position. I can speak for myself right now. Like I'm in a rocking of the house position and it is so tumultuous and chaotic, but at the same time, you can tell that on the other side, there is something so rich, so deep, and so beautiful. So let's talk about kind of that work and what that looks like. It's hard because in my case, and I think, you know, with my clients and my friends too, you're leaving a foundation of safety. So it's not like I was living a bad life. Anyone who was looking at my life would have been like, that's a pretty great life, Mm -hmm. but it felt horrible. Like it felt horrible. There was no pleasure. There was no connection. When I look back now, I was just like, I wasn't even happy. I was pretending to be happy. And I'm still, I cannot even tell you like, what was the thing that made me take that risk? You know, I'll often ask my clients, do you want to bet on probability or possibility? So the probability piece is the comfort, the calm. I know what I'm going to get. The possibility piece is full of risk and probably maybe a little bit of danger and the unknown. And for some reason, that felt like my only choice. It's really hard to leave a comfort zone because, you know, there there are so many strings attached. The older we get, the more we grow. Those strings just can become so much more like rope. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it can be harder to just cut that off or, or redirect that. So when someone's in the beginning stages of maybe recognizing that they want to make a change, but they're so scared to leap into that because there's so much, so many barriers, if you will. I'm curious what your advice is. I would say pick one thing. Um, so for me, it was really going to graduate school, right? So it was like, okay, this this matters to me, and I don't even know how it matters yet. Um, that that course I told you about, the master's, the PhD, the sex therapy certification, that was not at all laid out. It was 
I'm going to graduate school for a master's in psychology and I don't know what that looks like, but the, the going that felt important. So what I did for years was bridge like, okay, part-time journalist work to make some money and part-time school. And then it turned into like, okay, now finishing my master's, I know I don't know enough. I need that PhD. And now, okay, I've got this great trauma base. I know how to treat trauma, but I need that sexual pleasure base. So then the sex therapy piece came in. Like, and I still don't think I'm there, Tatiana. <laughs> like, like, this, <laughs> this can't be it. Like, still, what's the next thing? Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you loud and clear. And I think like that is kind of the beauty of, of evolution. And I think also, you know, you said a really great point there, which was just kind of like figuring out what that easiest entry point is. And just, I don't know if this applies to everybody, but sometimes I just need to take that first step into action. And then from there, there's little momentum that that turns into other things and kind of points me in the right direction. So I feel like just getting started with with one priority, you know, not the whole plate. Exactly. Yeah, I I think that's beautifully said. I think the only thing I would add to that, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, when I think back and all the meetings and things that I thought were going to be the next thing or be really important that turned out not to be, like you have to be able to hold those disappointments as well. The other malcontents out there like me, you know, I'm like, now, now it's too late. And what if it doesn't become part of the plan? Like there's the constant worry about it. But I think especially during COVID, during the pandemic, it's literally putting one foot in front of the other every day and seeing what that day shows up with. And some days are better and some days just aren't. Let's let's chat about that a little bit, because I think that we have kind of entered this point where, you know, we had the initial part of the pandemic early on last winter where I think everybody kind of went into shock. Um, everything was so not normal. And now we're entering this really weird part of what everybody's called the new normal, but it's kind of this really uncomfortable middle ground. And I know that with the loss of socialization, that we have really kind of had to relook at what the realm of our relationship dynamics are. And so I'm curious within your practice and kind of what you're seeing, what is a common theme that you feel like has been going on on the ground level? What are people kind of coming to you with? You know, it's interesting. It's a lot of the same problems that they always come to me with, but it's make or break. So in the couple's realm, it's So they're presenting the issue and they're either going to be better than ever or they're going to break up. I feel like COVID has just shown a bright light on the cracks and gosh, so many, I mean, many of the couples that I'm seeing are really figuring out a way to fill in those cracks. And I'm not saying that's always staying together, but it's, it's doing what's best for themselves and for the relationship. They're really tackling it. Um, COVID has given a lot of people time and in that time, comes um, discomfort mm-hmm. for things that they've been putting up with before because they didn't have the time to look at it. Now they have the time to look at those cracks and are like, okay, we need to figure this out. So between time being a huge one, do you also think that stress and overwhelm is shedding some sort of light on it as well? Yeah, for sure. And this is, I mean, this runs the gambit. I literally, in the same day, I'll have a client telling me like she is so bored. She doesn't know what to do with herself and she's depressed from the boredom to someone saying, 
I lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I'm online all day looking for a job or I'm working three part-time jobs to try to make ends meet. And my, you know, my child has to be home from school and how am I going to blah, blah, you know, all of these things. So it really, I, it's forced all of us to have to hold a lot. And I'm sure you have friends that are on this gambit too of like the, the myriad of problems that we're all holding. I think that what's been interesting too has been the concept of friendship dynamics, you know, straying a little bit away from from the intimate dynamic for a second. I think friend dynamics has been really interesting because it's forced us to really look in a way at the values of people around us. I'll I'll speak personally here. I think for me, it has to do with how certain people are showing up and just handling the pandemic overall, um, like in a safety sense. And I think also um, it's shined a light on how I've seen people show up for other people or the work around them. So I've just witnessed the way that people show up in my life sometimes because of COVID actually doesn't align so much as it used to. Mm. Yeah. When you first said that, the word tolerance came up in my head, which I kind of said with the couples too. It's easy to tolerate things when we're busy and we don't take time to look at them. It's impossible to tolerate those kind of things now. Yeah. Honestly, I think this is for the better. Like, I think we will all feel better um, I don't know, saying being choosier about our friends. I don't know, in some way that doesn't feel great, but I think you know what I mean. Just being more exacting, um, having our friendships align with our core values, um, really finding balance, like that give and get. I think we all have the friend during COVID who's super needy um, and love to all those people, but we also need to be cared for as well. Yes, could not agree more. <laughs> could not agree more. Because of this kind of pandemic hangover, if you will, this after effect of what's been going on, we've really been craving across the board really deep and rich relationships, honestly, more now than ever. I feel like the conversations within my own circles have been around friends really craving deep partnerships or people really wanting to find those deep friendships if they feel like they're misaligned right now in their current friendships. So tell me, in this crazy social distance world where it's so much harder to find those connections, how can we begin the process of of finding these meaningful relationships that we crave? It's a wonderful question. And I feel like the word that I want to lead with is vulnerability. And I don't know really how better to say that But as we step into that place of vulnerability, which we've, to be honest, we've all been forced to step into this year because we thought we were controlling things. And, oh, guess what? turns out we have no control over almost anything, right? Like things just got flipped so quickly. Now, nearly a year into this, we're coming back into like, okay, I can control this. I can control this. I can control this. But in those connections, controlling connections aren't great bedfellows. So we have to go to the other side. We have to go to where can I relinquish control? And that relinquishing control often looks like vulnerability. I really feel like vulnerability is the high art of connection. It creates space um, and it creates opportunity I'm curious, though, how do you suggest that we become more vulnerable, especially if we're kind of meeting new people that that we haven't already formed a trusted connection with? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I love it for um, for couples, for long term couples who have been together a long time as well. Um, So 
well, why don't I answer that question and then I'll go back to the new connections. So I just want to say that sex is a great way to cultivate vulnerability. And if you bring in tantric elements with sex in, in your long-term partnerships, because let's be honest, novelty has been completely lacking this year. And I, I truly believe novelty is the, the seat of human desire. We have There's nothing flipping new going on whatsoever. So if we can't go to novelty, what's the next piece, the next best piece? And I feel like that's, that's this connection. So bringing eye gazing, so these little tantric principles of eye gazing or really slowing down sex. So I think, again, for those long-term partners, those are two things that, that are go-tos for me. For the new people you're meeting, I feel like there has to be a point of intention. Um, so, you know, really, like, where are you meeting these people? How are you meeting these people? What's the common thread? What brought you together? But that doesn't have to be enough anymore. There has to be a common intention around the relationship. Where do you want to go together? Mm. First off, on the, on the note of long-term partnerships, that is a really fascinating concept, the idea that really novelty has been taken away. But I wonder with newer relationships, do you find that it's just a matter of saying what you want up front? Is it just as simple as that? It might be. So you're saying like really being clear about what you want the relationship to look like, how much time you're spending together a week, um, if moving in in three months is a possibility, things like that. Sure. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm laughing because I feel like those are such um, large statements or requests that might scare a friend or a partner away because of the commitment. Commitment's hard right now, Tatiana, because no one knows what three months is going to look like or six months is going to look like, barely what next week is going to look like. So what about talking, you know, just cultivating the presence and where you are in the relationship? But, you know, people come in with expectations. There's no way they can. It's human nature. So I think you've got to pay attention to that. And if the expectations don't align, you either create boundaries around it or make different decisions about how you'll move forward. Okay, so I'm curious where the self-worth component comes in. I think a lot of the time that when we are looking to create deeper bonds or deeper connections, whether they're already existing or ones that we really want to cultivate and bring in, I think like it's a common sentiment, if you will, that people say that, you know, your self-worth is something that should be worked on before you can bring that in. What are your thoughts on that? I disagree. Um, you know, the, the sentiment kind of along the lines of what you were saying, like you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. Yes. Yeah. I categorically disagree with that. Partly for the reasons that I, when you asked me how sex saved my life, partly because of that, I, a lot of us aren't just born thinking we're rock stars, right? We're not, I wasn't born thinking I'm awesome. Like I had to have it modeled. I had to have someone else think I was awesome. I had to do mm-hmm. things. So I got that confidence, competency could feel a sense of purpose in things. And I, I definitely don't want us to be human, human doings and not human beings. Like we are worth it just being here. Mm. But for a lot of us, there has to be a sense of forward movement or I don't even care. Like if it's, if your thing for the day is I made my bed or, you know, great, my kids are still alive. A plus for me, that can be a day too. 
I love that so much because there's always such this emphasis on the self-optimization of always being better and doing better. When you say human doings, I mean a huge light bulb (laughs) just went off on in my head because I think that we are always kind of like striving to do the next thing and and achieve the next thing and check the next box and kind of be better at meditating and our rituals and and whatnot. And I wonder, I've always wondered where that really plays in when we're looking for those deep connections or if it's not such an important facet after all. That's so hard. I feel like that's uh, that has to be managed, right? Because I mean, just think for yourself about the kind of partner you would want. And I am constantly challenging my clients this way. Um, I think when we get too attached to what he or she is going to look like, the money they're going to make, what they're doing, that's really dangerous. And we can lose ourselves in that process. So I'm not saying I don't want any attachment to the life you want to live and and how you see that playing out. But I think there has to be some looseness in that, especially now, just because the uncertainty that we're sitting in. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that. What do you what are your thoughts on on the qualities that are needed to really create a lasting, wonderful dynamic between someone versus the more superficial qualities, if you will? Yes. So we start making that list of what our, what we want our perfect partner to look like when we're a kid. Right. And it, at my age, like I was just like, oh, it might happen. It might not. I'm going to do my best with it. You millennials are like, fuck this. I'm entitled. I am getting this person. I'm not going to settle for anything less. And I actually love that about you guys. <laughs> but it also gets you in a bit of a bind. Dr. Holly, I'm going to be honest. I have so many friends in my life who are who are still so in a bind and really unhappy being single. I, you know, I'm not going to put an emphasis on, you know, being partnered or single. Who cares? It's it's whatever you're content with. But I find that the narrative narratives around me are are just people are so desperate for partnerships, but their expectations are through the roof. Right. Right. So I don't want to miss your question. Um, The qualities that I think are most important, appreciation is at the top of my list for sure, as is admiration. I want people to choose someone they admire, and Mm. I want them to feel admired and appreciated back. I really make a a practice in my household to appreciate my partner and my children, to be honest, as as often as I can, because when they're taking that in, when they're taking like, oh, I'm really appreciated, meaning I'm important. I have a place in this relationship. I have a place in this family. Everybody just feels a little bit more connected, a little bit more satisfied and like they're a part of something. It becomes so much more, it honestly becomes so much more playful and exploratory too. It it does. It does. And it takes it out of the realm of how much money do you make and what does our house look like? Um, And again, I don't want to dissuade people from going for what they want. But at the end of the day, after you're married or with someone for 25 years, like I promise that's not going to be the most important thing. I promise. Okay. So you talk a lot about mindful sex. I would love just to get your thoughts on that. Tell us what mindful sex is. It's really, it's a practice in presence and intimacy without judgment, right? So you're really being present in the sex you're having 
and you don't have an expectation about that, what that is supposed to look like. So it's really moving into that realm of pleasure instead of the realm of performance. Um, like you and I talked about a little bit ago, um, we're raised, especially girls to perform and to be what our partners want us to be. Right. Like, I, you know, the fact that my pleasure wasn't important didn't even really come into my radar until I was well into my twenties. I don't think that's happening anymore. Um, and you can speak to this for, for people in their twenties, but I think teenage girls today are like, damn, my pleasure is important. So they're, a step into the journey of mindfulness. But again, it's about pleasure. It's not about performance. It's not about that everyone's having an orgasm. It's not about what your body looks like, smells like, tastes like. It's about two or more people coming together and just enjoying each other's company and bodies. Wow. That is so profound. And I could not agree more with you because it's it's something that I was was truly never taught that narrative. And I think that even to this day, it can be challenging for people who kind of have been brought up with the lens of not feeling as if they are deserving of pleasure. And it can be so hard to kind of get into that mindset of, of having mindful sex when, you know, there's this conditioning behind it. So where do you suggest we begin if that just feels like it's a stone's throw away? Right, right. So break it down, like take it, strip the sex that you've been having bare and start over. So get in bed with yourself or your partner and just do a body exploration from the top of your head to the tip of your toes. Touch yourself and figure out what feels good. What are your erogenous zones? And these are not just your genitals. There's going to be other areas of your body that you like to be touched. Um, Maybe it's your neck, maybe it's your hair, maybe it's your ears, maybe it's the back of your knees. So you're just exploring and you're also exploring with different kinds of touch. Do you like someone to kind of grab you hard or do you like tickles or do you like taps? Um, This is really fun work to do partner, but I love it. I prescribe it for almost every one of my clients to do alone too, as I help them develop a self-pleasure protocol. But again, it's taking orgasm off the table, like that goal of where we think we're supposed to be going off the table. And, you know, we have to be honest, so much of our sex education comes from porn. Yes. I'm totally pro porn, but I'm totally pro knowing that it's not sex education or realistic. So I prescribe it for a lot of my clients, but there's that disclaimer. Like you can watch this to get aroused, but I don't want you to copy it. Yes, that is huge right there. Right there. That's so big because they think that, I mean, for me, the model for sex was porn. That's how I figured it out. I was like, how does this work? You know, let's do a quick Google search and <laughs> and see how this whole thing actually goes down in, in the bedroom. And I think that from there, it's really easy to model that. Exactly. How do we not? Like, it's the same with the sitcoms we grew up on. Like, that's the ideal, right? And in porn, she always comes. He always comes. Everybody's having a great time. People are usually pretty gorgeous. Like, good luck with Careless. that. If, if, Right, right. Good luck. Okay, so if I'm someone who's listening and I'm just like, okay, cool, cool. Mindful sex sounds great, but I have kids and I'm working at home and uh, my proximity to my partner is just, we are so close. We're home all the time. And if we're going to have any sort of sex or intimacy, we really got to schedule it in. So how do we bring mindful sex into that equation? 
oh my gosh, you just described my life. So I have a five and seven year old. I'm, I'm a late in life mom. Um, so I'm just, I'm right there with you and don't have grandparents close by during the winter. So it's like, you know, usually you can send the, the kids out to the park with a babysitter, but it's 12 degrees here right now. So there's just, um, my point is there are a lot of hurdles, but you have to schedule it. So the first thing I would recommend is for people to get out of their heads that if we have to schedule sex, it's not going to be sexy. Mm. That is not true. It doesn't have to be spontaneous. How you make sex between long-term partners spontaneous anyway, like that's already a challenge. And there usually has to be that novelty piece involved, right? So it's a trip somewhere. It's going to the theater. It's having something special planned. We can't do any of that right now. So really, it's it's setting apart, uh, setting aside that time to have sex and to connect. So if you can get the kids out of the house, great. Um, if you can go to a hotel or an Airbnb for a night, great. If it can only be after eight or nine o'clock at night when the kids are in bed, it is what it is. I also talk about sex and parenting and, and starting sex education early. And I feel like for some parents, the, the children get to an age where they need to know that their parents deserve privacy. So if it's a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and you put that spoon on the door or the sign or whatever you want to do that says to the kids, don't come in, I think that's that can be great. It's teaching them a lesson in boundaries and it's teaching them that your pleasure is important. I'll share a, a funny story. So I was thinking about the other day, I was like, where did I gravitate toward kind of this sexual confidence and um, this this idea and comfortability around sex growing up? And I, I grew up in a really European household, so it was just, you know, naked bodies were just a thing. Um, and growing up, I had a best friend who was Greek, and we would have playdates every weekend. And I remember sometime around Saturday or Sunday in the afternoon when we were just so in the depths of playing, her parents would go upstairs and they'd lock the door and have nap time. And it was only on reflecting upon this literally a week ago that I was like, oh my gosh, they were not napping. They were having sex and great for them. And how cool to just kind of normalize that and bring that up in a way, but not be super, you know, they weren't saying we're going to, we're having sex right now, but they were saying mommy and daddy are going to go take a nap right now. The door was locked and, you know, later, you know, maybe the mom would come downstairs and she'd be topless, just getting some water. And it was so normalized. And I remember thinking, you know, reflecting on that and being thinking how cool, how, how amazing that was to have that kind of as, as a role model. I am so excited that you shared that story. It is, it's perfect. It's perfect. And it's another reminder for me how to model. We kind of do that five and seven. It's tricky. They're not ready, right? They're not really ready to know. They're ready to know we're taking a nap, but yeah. can they respect the boundary of privacy? No, they're going to come knock on the door. Yes. So, um, <laughs> Mom. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we've literally said, like, unless someone is bleeding and the house is on fire, do not knock on this door. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes it works out. But it it's hard. But those the parents, you just have to set aside the time. And again, let yourself off the hook of, oh, this isn't going to be sexy because we had to plan it. Use something to cultivate arousal. So whether you watch porn together, you read a sexy story together, maybe one of you puts on lingerie, like whatever your thing is, figure out what your thing is. 
and use it because you have this limited limited amount of time in a space that's not going to feel particularly sexy if it's the bedroom you've been sleeping in every night for the last year. Hey, an, a nice takeaway too is just that, you know, modeling that and and doing so in in an authentic way around your kids is not going to is not going to freak them out. Like they're definitely not, <laughs> not as aware as you are and also if if you're anything like me reflecting back on that years later is just it it brings me joy. It makes me happy to see that things like that were normalized. Absolutely. And it sounds like you you had a healthy sense of your sexual self. And um, perhaps that was a part of it because it didn't have to be hidden. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Was there ever a point in your life? And I know we've kind of been talking to to that turning point when you you did meet your partner. Um, But I'm wondering if there was kind of a point in your life when you knew that you had to take a big leap or do some reprogramming into your authenticity. Um, I'm curious like what that looked like or maybe what that felt like. Maybe people can resonate with with that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I alluded to this before. Everything was just so controlled that there was very little way for pleasure to get in. And I don't want to say it was an aha moment, but there was just days which turned into weeks, which turned into months. It was like, I'm not, I'm not going to make it if this keeps going this way. Not like I was going to do anything bad or I was going to die, but I just knew I was going to shrivel away. Like I was going to have to accept something that I knew wasn't the life for me. And again, that just, that was an untenable feeling. Like I didn't want to not try. And, and sex is a big part of that, just like moving towards pleasure and connection. Sex is so empowering. When you're having good sex, you just feel like like the world is at your fingertips and you're on fire. You have all of that, that Eros energy. So when we talk about eroticism or Eros, it's not about sex. It's about life force. And mm. that's what I got. Like I got a new life force and I feel lucky and I feel blessed and I'm also a late bloomer. Like I just showed up late and, and of course I have regrets about that, but it's, it's all good. You know, I mentioned I'm definitely, uh, I left a relationship without any children, which made it so much easier, but I started this new one um, and had kids in my early mid forties. I mean, I'd love to actually talk about that because I think a lot of the time, especially right now in kind of this hyper digital world that's been uber emphasized with the pandemic, I think a lot of the time people feel like there's kind of this race that that they're behind or that they're not caught up enough. And there's always just this this pressure to be more. And I'm wondering what your advice is for people who feel like they're just, quote unquote, behind. Uh. I mean, first, I just want to say it resonates so deeply. Um, and I still have moments of that. And there's this greater trust that I'm going to be okay. And I'm where I'm supposed to be. And maybe me being an older mother, like I've had it happen, where I've told people like, literally, no, I got pregnant with no help at 45 and had a baby naturally. Like you, like super rare, but please don't think like miracles don't happen or that you can't do this. Right. Mm. Like, so it's just settling into the, there's a time and a purpose and it doesn't, it's not all roses. Like I said, I have a lot of regrets about showing up so late 
but I have to like hold on to those moments of maybe giving someone else a little confidence. Yes, you can go back to grad school in your mid thirties or late thirties. Yes, you can start a family. Yes, like write a book, whatever these things are, write your first screenplay, whatever it is that you want to do, start a company. I just, I feel like our timeline of life has been expanded and COVID in a lot of ways has perpetuated that just because the days go on forever, right? There's yes. Change. But <laughs> yes. I've definitely, and just specifically in 2021, like this feeling of stuckness and perhaps it's the weather here in New York this winter, but it just feels like, oh God, this is, this is stuck. When is, when is this going to change? Yeah. You brought up something that, that made me, the, a word that came to me was intuition. You are so, I can tell, and, and based off of the work you do, so deeply intuitive. I'd love to hear how you lead with your intuition from your end, but also then maybe how we all can tap into that ourselves. Where can we find that? Oh my gosh. It's like, it's deep, right? Like it's a feeling for me and my gut. And I think for, for my clients too, and most people, you just, you, you know it when you feel it, it might feel like purpose. It might feel like importance or intention. Um, it doesn't feel surface, Mm. right? Like it doesn't feel like I'm working for, the new car I'm working for the promotion it, it in some ways it feels like life and death not literally but that feeling that I was telling you about growth versus shrivel that's what it is to me and I'd love I'll share just a little story and I don't want to make this about motherhood but I when I was 41 my partner and I were like well let's just we won't use birth control let's see what happens if we try to have a baby if we have one great if we don't then we don't and we're we're all good And I started having um, miscarriages, of course, because of age or because of who knows what. So I like that was the intuition part. Like there was something in me is like, oh, I have to try harder. I can't stick with that plan. Sorry, love, but I have to try harder. So we found a reproductive endocrinologist and tried to have our baby and we had him and that was trusting my body. Like there was a lot wrong with my body in that shrivel stage. There were a lot of reasons that I shouldn't have been able to have a baby. And I had a wonderful pregnancy. I've never felt more alive in my life. Never, ever. And so had my first little boy, Archer, and that was wonderful. And he was one and we had given away all the expensive baby stuff because we're older parents and we're done. And I didn't get my period that month. And I was like, God damn it. I'm in menopause already. Uh, and I was pregnant. So that, and it's a life changer. And, you know, um, my kids are both, you know, assholes and the things I love most in the world. But my life has forever changed. And I feel like it was that moment of like intuition, like, oh, I think my body can do this. I'm just going to try. When you're following your intuition, it feels like there's no other choice. I mean, and this is, uh, some people might not resonate with this, but for me, this is really where a lot of that, the spirituality comes in. It is so yes. soul-centered that it it feels otherworldly. Yes. Oh, you just said that beautifully. Thank you for that. Mm. I'm glad that resonated. Yeah. So I'm curious about your own regimen and routine when it comes to how you stay sexually well. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, complete honesty, I used to be really good about 
self-pleasure or masturbation because my husband was commuting and I had the house to myself. So, right, the kids are in school, yep. husband's commuting yep. in and out of the city. Um, I've got the whole house to myself. I've worked virtually for about four years now. I'm so, like, my partner is so awesome. I could walk downstairs right now and say, hey, I'm going to masturbate, leave me alone. Like, all good. He wouldn't care even for a second. But I'm not, I haven't been as good about that. So uh, just since January, I'm like, I have to put this back in place and just go ask for the time that I need. And then for us as um, a couple managing everything we just talked about with with kids at home, it's making a concerted effort. You know, I don't know. Sometimes it's once a week. Sometimes it's three times a week. Then a week isn't anything at all. And it all has to be okay. Like it's all we have. We talk about sex all the time. Yeah. Maybe that's my regimen. We just talk about it. Like it just we just talk about it and very little gets in the way on that front just kind of like normalizing that conversation, especially amongst partners. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, now I'm in a partnership. I can't bring in the self-pleasure component because that's what, quote unquote, um, this partnership is for and what it's supposed to fulfill. So, I mean, could you speak a little bit more to that? Because that is a taboo I would love to bust. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that sex begets sex. The more sex you have, the more sex you want. And if you're not living with your partner or if you are living with your partner and there's other people in the house, you're probably not having as much sex as you want to be having. So the most obvious person to have sex with is yourself. And honestly, this is good for you anyway, because what if you're not able to easily orgasm with your partner, but you know how to make yourself orgasm? These are all good for you. Oxytocin, stronger pelvic floor, stronger art orgasms, better sleep, reduced stress. So this is like that, that self-pleasure, prioritizing the self-pleasure. I just, I think is a huge, huge piece of this and that we can't satisfy, our partner can't satisfy all of our needs. We need to take that into our own hands quite literally. What are your tips for bringing that up if someone feels kind of uncomfortable bringing that up in a partnership? Like where do we begin with that? Oh my gosh, you know, that's like so much of the work that I do with couples. So Mm. I do something with people called their sexual template. So this is really breaking down the desire piece and the arousal piece. The desire is kind of that that feeling of wanting, the psychological aspect of wanting, where arousal is the physiological piece of wanting, so like literally what turns you on, and talking about this with each other, right? Because there may be some things that turn you on that your partner, like they just can't have a place in. Maybe it's a certain kink. Maybe it is masturbation. Maybe it's, I mean, who, who knows what it is, but if they're not involved with it, it doesn't make them any less valuable, right? It doesn't make them any less loved because there still has to be this place in all relationships for connection, mindful sex, that vulnerability piece, but there also has to be in a place in the relationship for you. You know what I just thought of, and and thank you for painting that so beautifully. Uh, I almost related that to the way that we have so many different friendships in our lives and certain friends serve for different purposes. And then sometimes we might need some alone time just to, to recharge before we go back into different dynamics. And I think of that as in the same way as sex. One person isn't going to fulfill the dynamic world of what pleasure and sex is yeah that that idea of eroticism is really big and to have one person be responsible for that for us like that that just doesn't feel good and it's not tenable um that won't go well (laughs) another thing i can almost (laughs) promise um it puts too much pressure on the partner and it puts a it it takes um autonomy away from you 
So on on this similar note, I'm curious what your non-negotiables are for good sex. Mm, oh, for sure, consent. Yeah. Um, maybe you've heard me say this, but the, definitely one of the platforms that I speak from is sex positivity. Um, and my definition of that is all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. So it has to start with consent. Um, and, you know, most people are like, well, duh, like if I'm with my long term partner, of course I have consent. But consent around everything, like trying something new, trying a new toy, um, trying a new scene, trying whatever it is. So it's just consent can translate also just to open communication. And then this pleasure piece, which you and I talked about earlier, is far too often missing, especially for women. That has to be a component as well. I know that you have a book coming out. It's titled Reclaiming Your Pleasure, A Sex Positive Guide to Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life. I am curious about what good sex, consenting sex looks like in that context when we are dealing with people who have had sexually traumatic experiences. What does having good sex and reclaiming pleasure look like? Oh, that's such a, it's such a good question. And so hopefully you you and your listeners are making the tie between that work I did with the girls in the detention facility to working at the rape crisis center mm-hmm. um, to, to this book. Um, my dissertation was on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault. And I feel like this book is an expanded uh, purview of that. So it really covers all kinds of sexual trauma. So what I identified in my dissertation were the three elements for good sex are control, maintaining and relinquishing. So within control, maintaining it and relinquishing it, pleasure and connection. Now, there's a surprise fourth element that I've identified in the book, but I'm not going to give it away so people read the book. Sorry. <laughs> no spoilers. Shameless self-promotion there. The book uh, <laughs> won't come out in until October, so, but we've covered it today. Like, honestly, no big secret. We've, we've covered a, a lot of it today. Like, there's going to be an element that feels workbook-like. Um, it's not a workbook, so there's a lot of theory in it, but there are also a lot of exercises. Because when I talk to survivors, they get all these big concepts that I'm talking about, right? Consent, pleasure, yeah, got it, got it, got it. But then they're like, but how? But mm. how? But how? So this book is the how. Yes. Oh, wow. That is so necessary. Thank you for creating that. <laughs> we're, we're thankful for you. Well, thank you for having me on and giving me a, a platform to speak about it. And of course, you know, if you, you feel like you want to circle back around um, this coming winter and talk specifically about that, I'm right here. I would be honored. I think let's definitely make that happen. So, okay, this was an amazing conversation. I, you know, we've teased everybody for a part two, so I'm already excited for for that. So tell us where we can connect with you, where we can find you and follow your work. Uh, Thank you so much. So all social media is just at Dr. Holly Richmond, um, D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. And my website is drhollyrichmond.com. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Holly. This was such a pleasure. It was. Thank you again for having me on. It's been a, a really like the best podcast I've been on in a long time. You're fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram 
at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.